Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Serial Audio presents Convergence, written by Michael Patrick Hicks, performed for you by Travis Baldry. Episode 5 Chapter 8 Opening my eyes was a struggle. They felt gummy and unyielding, and it took a moment before I could see, another for the blurriness to pass. A warm breeze brushed my face, and when my focus finally snapped into place, I found myself outside, half reclining in a hospital bed on a spacious wooden deck. The sky was clear, and the expanse of ocean was a rich blue-green. A figure, too far away to be distinct, moved within the calm water. I was confused and disoriented. The scene before me did not jibe with my last memories of blistering pain. I remembered Captain, but he was nowhere to be seen. We were meeting Alice Shi, and I vaguely remembered her coming to my aid while I lay bleeding. I was dressed in a terry cloth robe, but was naked beneath that. An IV had been run into my left arm, and a drip bag filled with clear fluid was suspended from a tall metal rod beside the bed. No one else was around, so I pulled the robe apart. A fresh pink scar marked my right thigh with slightly puckered skin. I poked at it with a finger, but it felt fine. On my chest, another fresh scar. I found its twin on my back, barely within reach, but the skin felt smooth beneath my fingers. The tip of my index finger was still missing. The scar tissue there was a lumpy mess, a glaring disfigurement, though my other scars were not. There were two possibilities for how my wounds had healed so quickly. One was better than the other, but I didn't care much for either of them. The most likely was that somebody had given me a medicine boost. I could have been in a coma, but somehow that didn't feel right and I rejected it as a possibility. My body was stiff, not quite sore, but leaden. Guardrails were raised on each side of the bed. Using the rail for leverage, I pulled myself up and scooted toward the foot of the bed, past the guardrail. I swung my legs over the side. It took me a while and the exertion left me exhausted, but I hadn't even made it out of bed yet. I pushed myself forward until my feet touched the hot wood below, and then I stood. My legs were weak. Small tremors jangled the aching muscles. I took small, carefully measured steps, holding onto the IV stand for support. The wind kicked at the loose robe, and I pulled it shut around me, then tied it off, feeling slightly embarrassed at my nakedness, even though I was alone. A long flight of wooden steps led down to the beach, but the trek down would have been an ordeal on even the best of days. The deck was large and roomy, although the bed I had lain in clashed with a Spartan decor. A hibachi grill doubled as a long table, and metal-framed chairs with thick cushions were arranged around it. A robe similar to my own was draped over the back of one chair. Tiki torches dotted the deck railing at regular intervals. I walked to the railing and leaned against it. I was tired. And when I looked down, waves of vertigo rushed over me. I'd never been comfortable with heights, and the open spaces so far up put me on edge. Still, 
The view was beautiful, better than anything I had seen over the last few years. Below, Alice she swam. Her naked body, long and slender, flitted beneath the water's surface. The sea was calm, and she glided easily. Her limbs and muscles seemed accustomed to the well-practiced movements. She was a strong swimmer. Watching her was calming and hypnotic, and I wished for something to draw this vista with, but my tools were still at Echo Park. The water, the way the light hit it, and the shadow of her figure beneath the surface, I committed it all to memory. She went out to a point, then dove again, her slender legs doing a brief scissor kick in the air. The ocean was clear, and her lithe figure twisted so that when she resurfaced she was facing me. She looked up and waved. She swam toward the shallow water and walked in toward the beach. Alice was naked and unflustered when my gaze lingered. I watched her climb up the stairs, and she smiled as she approached me. She was trim, and her muscles were delicately defined. One breast was small, the other was absent. The tight skin was a patchwork of scars, making a mess of folds and dimpled flesh from where her chest had been stitched together. She went to the chair to retrieve her robe. Her black, shiny hair was a stark contrast to the white terry cloth. It's good to see you up and about, she said. How long has it been? I asked her. Three days. Three days? Hours, I could believe, but not entire days. Fuck. How do you feel? She asked. Tired. She nodded. Do you want to lie back down or sit? I'm not really sure yet, I said. She took my hand in hers and wrapped her other arm around my waist as she led me to one of the chairs. We moved slowly, and the short walk took me a while. The bed felt miles away. When she helped lower me into the seat cushion, I wasn't sure I'd be getting up again. Do you want some water? She asked. I was surprised by her warm bedside manner. The degree of care and warmth coming from her was unusual given our past, brief encounters, and the stories I'd heard about her. Too many things were not matching up with my expectations lately. Water would be nice, I said. She passed through an opaque sliding door, leaving it open behind her. The room was as spartan as the deck, with cherry wood floors, a large black leather sofa, and a fireplace. No photographs or any other mementos. If she lived here, she lived alone and kept few reminders of her life or her experiences. I listened for voices, but heard only Alice, whose soft voice was indistinct and the small sounds of the surf below. She was gone longer than she should have needed to get a glass of water, and brief pauses punctuated her muffled conversations, but no other voices filled the gaps. After a few moments of quiet, her voice picked up a sing-song quality. I closed my eyes, tilting my head back to absorb the warmth of the sun. The heat felt good against my face, scalp, and the stubble of my hair. Her singing grew closer, and I recognized the foreign-language lyrics of a popular Muziakimo Aki synth-pop grinder ballad. She smiled, suddenly self-conscious, as the tune died away. She carried a tray of sandwiches and large tumblers filled with ice water. I didn't know you sang, I said. I don't, she said. No, really. You shall eat. She sat and crossed her legs. The robe parted and fell away some, revealing a long expanse of toned thigh. The sandwiches were simple. Pita shells stuffed with slices of cucumber, spinach leaves, sprouts, carrot shavings, and a thick, creamy arcs of avocado. Pickles gave it a nice bit of tartness. I was surprised by how hungry I was. Who are you talking to inside? 
I tried to keep my voice casual, but I needed information. I was starting to feel paranoid and trapped. I wasn't sure how much to trust her. Your doctor, she said. He'll be coming over soon to check up on you. He's glad to hear you're awake. What happened? She was weighing how much to tell me. I could see it in her eyes, her trying to judge which bits of intel were important and what I should be allowed to know. I wanted answers and honesty, and it angered me that she apparently was going to be less than forthcoming. We have things to talk about, she finally said. I want the doctor to look you over first. I've been out for three days. I need to find my daughter. I understand that, but you are not in any condition to go anywhere. Not right now. Mesa is safe, and you need to get your strength back. What happened? I asked again. How much do you remember? I told her about working with the reclamation crews, about Captain's attack on us, and his interrogation of me. I explained how they had shot me, cut off my finger, then driven me out to meet her. I told her I remembered being shot again, but that part was fuzzy, and I pointed to the scars on my chest. She watched me soberly. She took a long drink of water to wash down the remains of her sandwich, then brushed the crumbs from her fingers. That's good, she said. You remember a lot. We were worried there may have been brain trauma from the blood loss. The doctor needs to run tests, and he's going to ask you questions. I can't tell you very much because it may interfere with his exam. I know it's upsetting, but please be patient. Why are you doing all this for me? I asked. She squeezed my hand, and her eyes went to the uneaten half of my sandwich. Eat. We'll talk more later. She stood and primly adjusted the robe around her, cinching it tighter at her slender waist. She took her empty plate and glass inside, closing the door behind her this time. I was left to study my reflection in the black glass, and I didn't care much for what I saw. I looked as old as I felt. My face was weathered and lined, my eyes dark and heavy. A shadow of beard was growing. More salt than pepper, it still had a few streaks of color. My hair had grown in some, but was still short and crisp. The gash in my jaw had been reduced to a thin line. I was hungry, but my appetite was gone. I forced myself to eat anyway, knowing that I needed the energy. Halfway through, I fell asleep for a time. A man dressed in faded jeans and a white t-shirt lured me back to wakefulness by shaking my shoulder. My eyes opened easier this time. His skin was ruddy and his nose bulbous. He leaned in close, examining my eyes with a penlight. Good, good he said in a thick Indian accent, then held up a long, thin finger and told me to follow it with my eyes. Good, good, he said again. He introduced himself as Sanjar Hashmi, and we shook hands. Although he was old and seemed frail, he had a strong grip and his hand was warm but powder dry. Do you remember your name? he asked me. Jonah Everett. That's right, good. The man was a broken record and I was getting irritated. Doctors ranked right up there with heights in terms of enjoyment. He checked my pulse at my wrist, then jammed his fingers beneath my jaw, around the sides of my neck, and behind my ears. He told me to open wide and say, ah. He fished a coil of wire from his pocket, then plugged one end into the port behind my ear and the other end into a palm-sized tablet reader. He tapped some buttons, watched the data scrolls carefully, then disconnected me. Blood pressure is good, so is your heart rate. How do you feel? He slipped his hands beneath the robe. His fingers dug into the bullet wounds at my chest and back, and although the skin had been knitted shut, the flesh was still sensitive and tender, and he pressed hard. Sore, I said, wincing. 
Move your arm, he said. This way. He swung his arm in a circle up over his head and back down as if he were swimming. I followed his lead, but more slowly. It's stiff, I said. Mmm, he said. That will pass in a day or two. Keep working your arm. And your leg? He opened the robe, impassive to my nakedness, and pressed at the edges of scar tissue. Extend your leg as far as you can. Rotate your foot. Good. Keep moving your limbs, and you will be fine. Alice said three days have passed. He met my eyes, and I got the impression, for the first time, that I was suddenly more than a specimen for him. He pulled a chair over and sat in front of me. I kept you sedated, and you needed the rest. Your body had been under a tremendous amount of strain. Your vitals were very low, very weak. You had lost a lot of blood. It's kind of odd for a couple gunshot wounds to heal in three days, don't you think? I knew what they had done to me, and I wasn't really surprised by it. I wanted to hear him say it. I injected you with medicines. If I hadn't, you would have died. So you're a medicine man, huh? I laughed, and so did he. I couldn't help but think of Captain, though. My laughter died in my throat, and I curled my ruined hand into a fist to hide the damage. I am surprised you did not have them already. Usually for a man with modifications such as yours, tech augments are hardly a surprise. When they are missing, though, that is surprising. Especially nowadays. I like staying connected, I admitted. The health industry was never for me, though. I figured when it's time for me to go, I'll go. Didn't really need or want the medicines. It's interesting, he said. How selective some people are. You have no problem tampering with your brain and your nervous system, conjoining them with artificiality and cybernetic enhancement, perhaps to live a better life, no? Yet you're still a bit cavalier about that life, no? And besides, medicines were free, so... Nothing's free, Doc. I looked down at my hand. Without them, you would have surely died. The amount of fluids you lost. The medicines were required simply for replication procedures, to synthesize new compatible blood cells, and to close your wounds. The bullet had punched through my back and chest at a high velocity. Much of the damage that had been done to my internals was the result of concussive forces and bone fragmentation. The sucking chest wound had collapsed a lung, and the bullet and its kinetic energy had shattered ribs. I could feel the tackiness of the adhesive patch the doctor had applied over the wound to help reinflate the lung. Keeping me alive while they waited for the medicines to kick in had been a struggle, he said. It had taken almost a day before the nanos started working on tissue repair, and Hashmi had to rely on old-fashioned know-how to keep me stabilized. You are lucky I am a good doctor, he said, adding a warm smile to show he was being modest. I thanked him for his efforts, and he asked me to stand. He braced me with one arm, and we walked around the deck until I said I was getting tired and had broken a sweat from the exertion. He and Alice rolled the bed back inside, turning what I had thought was a living room into a makeshift bedroom for me. I was still confused by her goodwill, but I found myself lacking the energy to question her again. I wondered if the doctor's ministrations had been an effort on her part to keep me sedate, to wear me down, and avoid confronting her motivations. She helped me into bed and adjusted the sheets, tucking me in with a sort of maternal affection. The doctor said goodbye, but I was already fading. When I closed my eyes again, Alice was sitting in a chair, her feet tucked beneath her, a data pad resting on her lap. I slept long and deep, but my dreams were troubled with nightmare images of Mesa being brutalized by Kaftan. 
His cybernetic hand plucked off her fingers one by one as she screamed my name, begging me for help and cursing me. He made me watch, but I was nothing more than a torso, suspended from the ceiling by chains and hooks. My arms and legs were missing, even my teeth were gone. I could not move. I could do nothing to help my daughter. Celine stood over me, sheathed in white, but she said nothing, and her eyes were hollow, black pits. I choked out guttural screams, but I wasn't sure if the sound came from the physical me or the me inside my dreams. It's okay. I needed a second for my eyes to focus. Alice was holding my hand. You were dreaming. She wiped away the sweat on my forehead. It's okay, she said again. I relaxed, easing my head back down to the pillow. Her hand rested on my shoulder. She was tired and her hair was mussed. She wore cotton shorts and a pink top. Dawn was breaking outside and the opaque door was clear. What time is it? It's early. You slept all day yesterday. I need to go to the bathroom. She helped me up and I trudged along beside her with the IV stand while she showed me the way. The house was as spartan as I had thought. Nothing ornamental except for a few empty vases that stood on a recessed shelving unit in the hallway. No photographs, no artwork. The house was beautiful, but as desolate as the ruins downtown. Whatever comfort it provided was artificial. After I urinated, she asked me if I was ready for a shower, if I was strong enough. I don't think I need this either, I said, holding out my arm and the coil of tubing that led to the IV. She found some cotton balls under the sink, then tore the tape away from the crook of my elbow and withdrew the needle. She pressed the cotton against the tiny wound and I held it in place, leaning against the counter. The small needle hole closed after only a few seconds and left hardly a drop of blood on the cotton. She turned on the shower and waited for the water to get warm. That should be good, she said, testing it with her fingers. Steam started to build up against the frosted glass. There's soap inside and shampoo. I have clothes you can wear as well. She left me, closing the door behind her. The hot water felt good and it helped to restore me. When I stepped out of the shower, a fresh shirt, pants, socks, and underwear awaited me on the counter, along with a pair of shoes on the floor. The shirt was a size too big and the sleeves were too long, but everything else fit well. After dressing, I followed the scent of eggs and potatoes to the kitchen. It felt good to be walking on my own, although I was still stiff. I rotated my arm and flexed my fingers, trying to work out the kinks and the pain. Do you feel better? Alice asked. She was sitting at an island in the center of the kitchen, reading from her data pad. I do, actually. I sat and we ate. I was starving, and I washed the food down with eager gulps of fresh-squeezed orange juice. Do you think you'll be up for a trip this afternoon? To where? You asked why I am helping you. Do you remember that? I nodded, unsure of where exactly this was going. I want to show you why I am helping you. You can't just tell me. It will be better to show you, to let you fully realize what I am about to ask of you. I waited. The potatoes turned to a cool lump in my mouth, and I had to force them down. I want you to kill the man who killed my family, she said. I nodded, starting to understand. Her next words shook me to my core. He has Mesa. Chapter 9 What did you do before the war? She asked me. We had been driving in silence, coming down from the hills, heading back into Chinatown. 
I felt as if I'd been away for more than a few days, and I realized I was stealing myself, as if the world had been overturned in my absence. The tinted windows cast Los Angeles in dark tones and deep, sinister shadows. Mesa was out there, somewhere in the ruins, and for a long moment I struggled to pull myself away from the depressing scenery. Alice had no idea where Mesa was, although she assured me again that she was safe. Alice sat beside me, dressed in a business suit, which was the sort of attire I was used to seeing her in. Gone with the cotton shorts and t-shirts of that morning. A double-breasted suit jacket hung loose over a dark, sleeveless blouse. She wore a gold tie and loose slacks, as well as matte pumps over bare feet. I was dressed similarly, polished black tassel shoes, a white shirt with too much starch in the collar, a wide black tie. I hadn't been dressed that well in more than a decade. I was an artist, I said, and a teacher. She raised one well-manicured eyebrow. Really? I detected hesitancy in her voice, as if she wasn't quite sure I was serious. Really, I said. I taught at City College, had a few of my drawings published, but nothing big. I was putting together an exhibit at the Da Vinci Gallery before the invasion. I was using Dreamer to chronicle memories and the passage of time. Using your memories? Some, yes. Some were from friends and family, and some were from students who volunteered. The exhibit was meant to be a display of the human experience, birth and death, perceptions on race and culture, prejudice and hate and anger, compassion and sex. A full sensory experience. The mems were all raw, unedited, and uncensored life. Visitors would have become intimately familiar with total strangers, vicariously lived numerous lifetimes, and experienced a multitude of moments. You were going to put human memories on display for everyone to share in. How would that have been any different than what corporations were already doing? She tempered her criticism with a soft smile, but it did nothing to quiet her dismissive attitude. Cheaper admission fees, not as watered down and sanitized as mem space. She wasn't interested in my deflection, and her gaze persisted, waiting for an authentic answer. I wanted it to be instructive, I said. I wanted people to know where it came from, to think a bit more about what this technology is, what it can do, to be aware of what exactly it is they're sharing with strangers. Dreamer began as a military application developed by DARPA. Its goal had been to create better soldiers with better adaptive protocols through cybernetic implants and bioregulated software that would control natural neurological responses. The databiologic receiver of mnemonic response captured and decoded the brain signals as it responded to stimuli. The dreamer recorded visual reception, cognitive and emotional responses, fight-or-flight reflexes, brain waves, blood pressure and pulse rates, digestion and respiration. Built from a series of complex neural nets and bio-nano interfaces, it tapped into the thalamus, hippocampus, and the intraparietal sulcus, the part of the brain responsible for binding multiple stimuli into a memory. Dreamer turned human soldiers into ground-based biological military drones, allowing command centers to survey and monitor a fighter's responses to conditions in the field. By linking a combatant's standard metachine deployment with Dreamer, Command could regulate the body's hormonal responses, delay the onset of shock, and nullify pain receptors. If a soldier was about to panic, his or her superiors could note the biological alterations and take preventive measures to protect both that individual and the entire combat squad. 
DARPA's corporate sponsors and academic researchers recognize the potential for Dreamer in the public sector, particularly in law enforcement, public health, and entertainment. Soon enough, Dreamer was adapted for civilian use. As with GPS, the Internet, digital photography, and the microwave, Dreamer entered the public sector as barely a blip on anybody's radar. Slowly and progressively, it built its audience as large multinational corporations sought ways to expand and exploit it. After surviving a few years on the fringe, the technology exploded across the globe and became a mainstay in everyday use. Were you born with it? she asked. No, I didn't get implanted until I was in college. Her smile grew larger. Ah, a late bloomer. Young and dumb, I said. Her fingers moved lightly across my knuckles, tracing the line of a vein along the back of my hand. I was born with it, she said. First generation, implanted in vitro. I've never known a life without the tech. In another twenty years, it was estimated that cybernetically enhanced individuals would outnumber those without it. Already, entire generations, mostly in Asia, were growing up in a constant state of connection, thanks to fetal implants. Some embrace it. Others protest its vast potential for misuse. I remember what it was like, I said. Before, I mean. We didn't need all this technology, this invasive constant connection, always on. Now, everybody thinks we have to have it, that we're out of touch without it. Everybody's one thought away, retinal displays, recordable memories. We're machines now. You don't like it. Some of it's good. I thought about tripping on DMT, the rush of death and the psychedelics it produced, the adrenaline and dopamine, and the colorful, vivid high of expiration. Then I thought about playing back memories of Mesa, of Celine, and of our past life. It left a hollow void that I was quick to push away. But if I had the option to do it over again, I don't think I'd let myself become this. I could feel the phantom weight of the cybernetic port behind my ear, and I fingered it impatiently. Suddenly it made me feel dirty. It's a culture shift, she said. The old versus the new. It's always been like this, though. Buggies versus cars. Print versus digital. Staring deeply in my eyes, she reached behind my ear to pull my hand away from the port. This is the new normal. People still have a choice. She shrugged and looked out the window at the blur of destruction that slid by us. Maybe somewhere else that's true. My thoughts turned back toward Mesa, and I hoped for her safety. My fingernails worried at a small knot of fabric on the thigh of my pants, picking at the tiny, raised imperfection in the otherwise smooth plane of cotton. I dug at it, trying to work the knot out to keep myself from going crazy with worry. I needed to fix something, anything, and that was the closest thing I could get my hands on. We're pulling up to a checkpoint, I said. His voice was tinny through the intercom, and we were separated from him by lightly tinted soundproofed glass. The car began to slow. Traffic was reduced to a long, single lane, but the PRC were efficient and quick. They worked in groups. A soldier appeared at the driver's side window and exchanged words with Hi. Two other soldiers walked the length of the car on each side, examining the wheel wells and underneath the car. The trunk released with a noisy clunk and I watched it open, then close a moment later. The guards waved us through a short time later. The checkpoints have increased steadily since the bombing a few days ago, Alice said. Attacks against the PRC have been growing. It has them nervous. It's good to see you're not, I said. 
The checkpoint had caused a spike of nerves in me. They always did, but it dulled quickly as Alice covered my hand with hers. My business has brought me into contact with several members of the Pakrim Coalition, and I've made friends both here and abroad over the last few years. I have little reason to be nervous. Is that how you found me? I asked. Her relationship with Captain had been nagging at me, and I was annoyed by her lack of answers. After goading me into this trip by bringing up Mesa, she'd said very little. What she did say was cryptic and maddening. We'd spent most of the afternoon on opposite sides of her stilt house. She'd meditated while I fumed and worked myself up into an ever-increasing state of aggravation. She had promised answers, telling me I would be able to see it all for myself soon enough. I had learned of Captain's attack on the reclamation sites, which you had me assigned to through your little network of friends. She shifted in her seat, crossing her legs. Yes. I hope her data chip was worth it. She broke eye contact. She actually seemed sad. In some ways, yes. In others, no. I had hoped for more. But her memories were still an important recovery. What does that mean, exactly? She ignored the question, continuing with her earlier train of thought. After the PRC was able to figure out who had been killed and who was missing, they- I interrupted again. Captain took others? Two men from another site. Three of the work sites were attacked simultaneously. When I learned you were missing, I put out some feelers and learned that Captain had been responsible. Does the PRC know he was responsible for the attack? No. They've had a difficult time establishing credible intelligence on his group or where they operate out of. They're blaming the militias. Liberty's children is even taking credit for it. He asked me about Jamie. He never asked me about you, though. She said nothing. Who is he? A soldier. Beyond that, I don't know much about him. Bullshit. She sighed and plucked at the knee of her slacks. I am a businesswoman, Jonah. I conduct business with multiple agencies, and I have a broad, diverse list of clients. You play everybody. You could say I'm a middleman. You could say I don't trust you. You could say I saved your life. She smiled with a hint of a chill. She was enjoying the sparring and was at ease. I relaxed, too, a bit. He's not militia, I said. Who is he? She stared at me for a long while, assessing me. He's corporate, private army. Which means he's not from here. He came in from over the border. He had help. I'm sure he did. But you know as well as I do how porous the border really is. How did you know? His clothes, his behavior, the way he treated me, things he said. She looked at my shortened index finger. What did you give him? In the past, I've provided him with weapons and armaments, food, fresh water, supplies, and munitions. And where do you get all those? She shrugged. As I said, I have a diverse list of clients. You also said you're a middleman. You are unusually questioning today, Jonah. I can't help but feel that our arrangement has shifted. Feel whatever the fuck you want. I want answers. She shrugged again. I already promised them to you. I shrugged too. So give them to me. She took a deep breath, reevaluating me. I provided Captain with long-range sniper rifles with subsonic sound suppressors, recoil dampeners, and visual acuity upgrades. Was that for me or for the chip you wanted? A quick stab of pain flickered across her eyes, but the truth had a habit of doing that to people. Both. You were a package deal. 
Why? Why do that for me? Alice took my hand in hers and tugged at my fingers. I loosened my fist and she ran a finger across the top of my shortened index finger. Because I know what he's capable of. She squeezed my hand and met my eyes. And because I like you, Jonah, I do consider you a friend for whatever that may be worth to you. You've been loyal and I appreciate your services to me. I'd never seen her more heartfelt. She was a woman who casually used words as weapons, but this had been honest and tender. She squeezed my hand again, then gently released it and refolded her hands together on her lap. How long has Captain been here? What does he want? Several months, and you already know what he wants. Jamie. I sighed heavily through my nose. What was on the chip? You will see soon. She laughed to soften the aggravation those words brought. It was a life, a woman's life. Her name was Anne Cornell, and she was from Des Moines. But that's not what you wanted. It was, in some ways. But not in others. No, not in others, she said. I believe, in that regard, that I had already found it, thanks to you. The answer to who killed your parents? Yes, she said. What she did next surprised me. With one simple movement, she completely disarmed and unnerved me. She slid closer to me, enough so that I could feel her warmth. Her movements were surprisingly comfortable, but the degree of familiarity she had presumed in taking my hand and by sitting closer to me put me on edge. Thanks to her, medicines coursed through my body, monitoring my vitals and overall health, making any necessary corrections. What else had been done to me while I was sedated? Alice could have picked apart my brain and studied my memories. Maybe she was attempting to play off familiar associations from my past. I stared out the window, telling myself I was being paranoid. I watched her reflection in the glass, and she glanced at me every once in a while. It sent a shiver up my spine. The faces that flickered past as we drove into Chinatown grew increasingly sad and somber. The people who lived there usually wore stoic expressions born of hardship. They'd faced war and racism. Some had been held at gunpoint, shot, or beaten because their skin was too yellow or their eyes too slanted. In the time following the invasion, I'd seen the people there shift through the streets with blank, downturned faces, but I'd also seen happiness. The people outside appeared haunted. Some were dazed or shell-shocked. I'd seen these expressions before, too many times. The market was attacked two days ago. Her voice was whisper-soft, close to my ear. She was leaning over me, following my gaze. Safe from their eyes behind the tented glass, we watched slack faces and hollow eyes. A suicide bomber came in the morning, early, while the crowds were thick. Thirty-seven people were killed, she said. Another sixty were wounded. The attack was bad. Who's claiming responsibility? The same group that attacked the 101. Jamie. I said nothing, but her eyes searched mine, seeking some sort of confirmation, as if I shared responsibility for this attack. I lost two of my chefs, she said. We were pulling up to her restaurant, one of many side businesses she engaged in. The tongs' reach was deeper than I had realized, based on what she had been willing to trade to Kafton for my release. The guardian lions reminded me again about yin and yang, about polar opposites. What did that make Alice and me? 
They were buying fish for their evening's dinner, she said. I wanted to apologize, but stopped myself. I didn't have anything to be sorry about. It hadn't involved me. I had been far away, recuperating beside the ocean in her safe house, and she knew that. But still she expected me to take some of the blame, to share in her sorrow, and to feel contrite. It pissed me off. Were any chips collected? I asked. We were able to gather a few, not many. I'd like to experience them. I will include them with the others. Great, I said. Her eyes narrowed briefly, as if she were passing judgment upon me. Whatever closeness had connected us in the car evaporated and was replaced by a sudden gulf. I patted a lion on the head as we walked past. Inside, the dining room was dark and mostly empty. It took a moment for my eyes to adjust. We ignored the hostess, who was seated behind a small desk decorated with a calendar from 1966, an ancient white rotary telephone, and a small circulating desktop fan, and moved deeper into the building. A few tables had couples. One held a group of three and another held four. Two people at the bar, one on each end, were drinking sake, separated by four small bowls of crispy wontons. Aside from a few robotic pet-human servers dressed in ill-fitting green uniforms resembling 1960s People's Liberation Army attire, complete with green hats and red armbands, that was it for the post-lunch crowd. The restaurant was a classic take on China's red restaurants, and the themes of the Cultural Revolution were redolent and excessive to the point of mockery. Along the back wall was a large red-toned mural, a rendering of an old propaganda poster of Mao Zedong standing above a group of PLA soldiers, holding a little red book in one hand and an assault rifle in the other. Framed posters were hung between tables. We passed a print of a red guard standing over a pile of crucifixes and Buddha statues, ready to deliver a crushing blow with a sledgehammer. The only color in the black and white image belonged to Mao's red armband and the cityscape of the then-new red China behind him. Around us, red brick walls fought their way through white plaster as if a bomb had gone off, exposing the underside of the revolution. Red Chinese paper lanterns hung from the ceiling, along with several large red Soviet hammer and sickle props and framed pictures of important communists such as Lenin, Marx, Castro, and Tito. Their imagery was minuscule compared to the rife displays of Mao. On Saturdays, Alice said, we do shows. We have the pet humans programmed to reenact stories from the Cultural Revolution, and customers come in to sing and dance. You should see it sometime. I nodded, but said nothing. I watched a man eat dandelions, raw cucumbers, and a small plate of shrimp that would have cost more than $50 before the war. His partner was enjoying a pork dish with a red bean curd. The kitchen was quiet. The pet human chefs made precise and swift movements as they prepared the lunch orders and readied the ingredients for the dinner crowd. Alice ignored them, and they paid no attention to us in return. I followed her through the prep area and the storeroom to a metal door with a retinal scanner and palm pad. You're chefs, huh? I said, unable to keep the disdain from my voice as I recalled her attempts at plying sympathy or guilt from me over her loss of personnel during the marketplace attack. I do have some human staff, she said, chafing at my words. My executive chef and his sous chef were murdered at the marketplace. Why didn't you send the robots to pick up the groceries? They lack olfactory programming. Not very useful for when unscrupulous vendors try to pass off rotting fish to robots who don't know any better. 
I arched an eyebrow at her, unsure if she was making a joke. It's happened, she said. Not to me, but to others. So I use humans to purchase foodstuffs. She pressed her hand to the wall-mounted pad, and the gizmos verified her optic coating, scanned her palm print, and came back as a match. A soft click released the door, and we went down a flight of creaky stairs to the basement. The security measures clearly meant this was not simply another stockroom. They protected more than Alice's surplus of bok choy and snap peas. LED lighting cast white, sterile light over a long row of access terminals, data storage bins, and digital pads. A group of fifty, mostly men, but I saw a few pockets of women as well, busied themselves at the terminals. All of them were plugged in, and each had large collections of memory chips at their stations. I almost laughed in disbelief, shocked again at the reach of this tongs fingers and of Alice's personal involvement. You're a memorialist, I said. The look on my face made her smile. The gulf between us closed as she took my hand in hers, and I wondered how much of it had been my imagination, my paranoia. Our hands fit together nicely. She giggled, revealing her inner youth, how she must have been as a child filled with hope and promise, and I wondered when, exactly, it had all started to go wrong, and what it had taken to make her the woman standing beside me. I'm a historian, she said, full of good cheer. Our private joke. I had told her that line some time ago because it sounded better than telling her I was a dreamer addict and a death fiend who sometimes needed the rush of DMT to stop myself from going crazy. She saw through it. She knew what I was. I moved slowly down the aisle, watching the methodical work of chips being slotted into the physical media players, which weren't much different from the one I had, and plugged into data tablets for download and analysis. Once the security scans came back clean and the data was dumped, the workers unplugged the Dreamer devices from the tablets and plugged the players directly into the data ports on their bodies. They had multiple levels of storage, each one a redundancy for backup. The bioorganic machines inside their skulls could hold a virtually unlimited amount of information, but natural limitations imposed on how readily accessible that information could become. To make things easier, the same data was also recorded to cloud and nano-ether storage as well as physical servers containing a host of yottabyte drives. The memorialist movement had begun overseas, back when Dreamer was still a largely underground technology and protested by the religious right and lawmakers who didn't understand it. A small collective of French data enthusiasts had taken it upon themselves to upload mem records on a nightly basis, always from different locations and with masked transfer protocols to avoid pings and tracebacks from the authorities. What began as a counterculture meme quickly grew into a worldwide following and birthed a technocratic movement that was religiously zealous in its preservation of memory and the sanctity of the present. Even after mem-sharing became a standard part of the daily grind, memorialists were fanatical in their devotion. They downloaded everything they could, then organized and cross-referenced it through keywords and tagged data points. They searched for convergences of moments and lives, from deep, meaningful relationships to casual acquaintances and the interaction of random strangers in random situations. They hunted constantly for an answer to a question so intricately complicated that humanity had no words to ask it with. I had once heard it explained that they were seeking the societal version of the grand unification theory, the answer to everything. The more religious members adhered to the simple maxim that God was in the details, and they believed that was what they were searching for. 
God, the invisible hand, the hidden force guiding every life and bringing one person into contact with another. They were voyeurs and collectors, obsessed with the lives of others. The few memorialists I had met struck me as strange, cultish followers with an unhealthy degree of interest in other people's lives and actions, and not enough interest in their own. They were shy, socially inept, and prone to loneliness and isolation. They were troubled and psychologically damaged, and I had found myself in a room full of them. Nobody had exchanged words, not even a glance, with Alice and me, or even one another. They were lost in their own little worlds built from the existence of people they had never met or interacted with. A tiny clock inside me was ticking down to zero. My heart ached with a realization that I was on borrowed time. If I didn't find Mesa soon, she would be lost to me forever. She could be anywhere, with anyone. He has Mesa, Alice had said to me earlier. And whoever he was, she believed he had been responsible for the death of her parents. All of the workstations were occupied, but Alice found me a chair and I sat. She gave me a tablet, an outdated one exabyte model that was nearly full. I pushed the data spike into the port behind my ear, felt the customary electric chill as the electronic receptors flared to life, and accepted the connection. The tablet felt heavier than it should have. It carried the weight of answers, the weight of knowledge, the weight of lives. I pressed play. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.